you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Jonah. Book of Jonah, chapter 1. If you don't have your Bible and would like to borrow one of ours, you will find our text on page 774 for this morning. Page 774. As we will see, perhaps even as we've already seen last week, and I hope that as you have been reading uh, already through the book of Jonah uh, to go along with our series, you will have seen that Jonah is a book of surprises. In almost every passage, something surprising, something unexpected is happening. It has begun with a surprising call on Jonah's life to go to a pagan city to preach. It continues with the surprising rejection of that call by the prophet Jonah himself. And this morning, what we will see is the surprising role of storms in the lives of God's people. And in all of this, not just this morning, but in the coming uh, weeks as we go through this book, it is important that we realize, though the book is titled Jonah, the book is not so much about the prophet named Jonah, but about the God of the prophet Jonah. At every turn in this short book, what we are seeing is the character and nature of God Himself, the God of the Bible. And at the foundation of this revelation of who God is, we see that uh, the Bible is telling us, Jonah is telling us that the God of the Bible, the God of this book, is the same God in character and in nature as He has said He is. In other words, whom God has said, this is who I am, that's the same God that we see in this book. Especially uh, a kind of foundational verse for this book or verses is found in Exodus 34 where the Lord tells Moses and so Israel and so now all of His people that He is the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. You need to keep those verses in mind because those are the fa- that is the foundation upon which the message of Jonah is built. It is this, this God, the God of the Scriptures, the one true God who is merciful and gracious and slow to anger, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and sin. Yet the question is asked, even in the storms of life, how do we see this God as being gracious and merciful? What does it mean for Him to be merciful and gracious when He hurls terrible and violent storms even at His own people? Well, this is what we want to see this morning as we look at Jonah chapter 1. Let me encourage you to follow along as we begin reading at verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise! Call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. This is the word of God to us this morning. 
As we consider this scene in the life of Jonah, we do want to think about this storm that God sent into his life. Not just the literal storm, but the figurative storm that stood behind it. And what we want to see is this, how the storms that God sends, not just into Jonah's life, but even into our lives, are not random. They're not meant to be destructive, but they are meant to be grace in our lives. Grace that allows us to take our our eyes and our thoughts off of ourselves and be refocused back onto Him. And so three things are revealed uh, about this from our text. The first thing is this. Storms reveal the foolishness of fleeing from God. Storms reveal the foolishness of fleeing from God. We began by being reminded of where we were last week, seeing Jonah on the run from God. And you'll remember that Jonah was a prophet of God. He was a mouthpiece for the Word of God in the world, calling people to obedience and conformity to God's will, as well as giving comfort and encouragement from the living God. And yet Jonah became the antithesis of his role. He was not wanting to offer encouragement or correction. He himself was not wanting to be encouraged or corrected, to to, to live in obedience to the call of God, and so therefore he fled. Now this is not, though, it bears his name, and often we see a sort of calling, an initial calling in the prophetic books. This is not the first time Jonah has been called to serve as a prophet of God. If you go back in in the, the book of Two Kings, you will see there that in the midst of a very difficult time, surrounded by enemies, uh, God used Jonah to bring a prophetic word of hope to his people Israel. And yet here Jonah was not called to go to his own people, the people of Israel, or even to its capital, Jerusalem, but rather the capital of a pagan nation to go to a pagan city, in fact, an enemy of God's people. And Jonah refused. He refused. God said, go, and Jonah said, no, and he ran the opposite direction. In fact, he gets a boat going in more or less the complete opposite direction. God says, go to Assyria. He says, I'm heading to Tarshish, what is likely modern-day Spain, specifically the port city of Cadiz. And as Jonah flees, it seems like he is trying to get farther and farther away from God. It's not enough just to leave. Jonah makes clear that he's in every way trying to flee from God. Not, not God himself, not his, his actual presence. The prophet is better than that. He's read Psalm 139. He knows it well. Where can I go to flee from your presence? Can I, can I even make my bed in hell? No, you're still there. I cannot get away from you, from your spiritual presence. And yet... And yet, what he wants to get away from is the presence of his call on his life. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson explains it like this. Jonah was not fleeing from God's omnipresence. He was fleeing from his felt presence, as our forefathers in the Christian faith used to say. From the God who had made himself known in grace and power. He was fleeing from the place of prayer and service. He was fleeing from the sphere of evangelism to which God was calling him. In his panic, he endeavored to go as far away as he could from that spot on the map where God had written the name Jonah. Surely there he could push to the back of his mind the haunting pressures of that word from God which had spoken with such authority to his conscience, go to Nineveh. It's that kind of presence of the Almighty to which from which he is fleeing. It's the place of the presence of God that is marked by obedience and joy and mission. That is what Jonah is fleeing. But notice how the text reads. 
Jonah rose to flee from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship. Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. He keeps going down. At the end of the chapter, he goes even further, down to the bottom of the sea. Now understand, this is not poor composition on the part of the author. Jonah did not fail Hebrew narrative writing from Jerusalem University with a professor nagging him all the time. Vary your vocabulary. Vary your vocabulary. No, just the opposite. When the Bible repeats words, and it's important you try and find a translation that actually doesn't try and make it spicier English, but repeats the same words so that you can see the emphasis of the writer by saying he went down and he went down and he went down. Something theological is being communicated to you there. His life is not improving. Jonah doesn't want to be where God wants him to be, but the result is that he keeps going down, both physically but also spiritually. His life isn't improving. It's only getting worse. And it's worth pausing here and thinking about that for a minute. Have you ever run from God? I think most of us probably have at some point, but it probably didn't look like Jonah's run. We probably didn't get on a plane or book passage a ship or go on an Amtrak and just leave the place. It probably didn't happen. Nevertheless, mentally and spiritually, we've probably checked out at some point in our walk with God, perhaps multiple times, even as we felt His calling pressing down on our lives. What did we use to distract us? What did we use to take our mind off of what God was calling us to do? Was it our family? Was it our job? Was it some kind of hobby? Perhaps it was even church activities. Perhaps you threw yourself into some kind of work here. And yet it was all so that we could be preoccupied with something else in the hope of silencing the call of God on our lives. Where He clearly spoke through our Bible reading or through our prayer time, through the preaching of the Word and said, You should do this. And we said, No, thank you. I don't want that. I don't want that in my life. What did you do to show defiance to God? What did you do to show that you wouldn't bend your knee to His will? That you would not give up your sin or your comfort in order to be obedient to His call? What was the thing that you grasped so tightly and would not let go? The one thing that caused your flight from the Almighty? And in answering that for yourself, ask yourself this next question. In doing so, did your life actually get any better? If you let God say, do this, and you said, no, I don't want to do that, that means giving up something, that means difficulty, that means not being in control of my life, so I'm I'm going to flee from that and not do that thing. Did you actually find your life getting better in refusing God's call? Now, the reality is it may have felt better in the immediate. It may have felt easier. And yet in the end, what we see is our life only going downhill quickly becomes clear to us, even as it does Jonah in our text, it is utterly foolish to try to run from God. This is evident not just because we make a mess of our life apart from God, but the fact that God isn't willing to let us go that easily. He is the Lord of the storm, and He is willing to use them to wake us up to our sin and our rebellion. He is willing to bring storms, not literal rains and winds, although He certainly could do that, but great crises to our life to show us the foolishness of rejecting Him and trying to run even from His grace. And yet that brings us to the second thing we want to see this morning, and that is this, storms reveal God's gracious pursuit of rebels. Storms reveal God's gracious pursuit of rebels. 
There is a tendency, I think, especially in the world, but even even in a church, to see anything bad happening in our lives as punishment directly from God. And sometimes it is the reality that our sin has consequences. Uh, We will reap the harvest of our bad decisions, of our disobedience to God. But sometimes we feel it's more than that, that, uh, that God is supernaturally imposing temporal judgment on us for our sin. And frankly, that, that can happen sometimes. If you think it can't, you've not read Acts 5 or 1 Corinthians 11, where God, to His very people, brings sickness and sometimes death because of their open and obvious disobedience to His will. But then you can also read a book like Job, or you can read John chapter 9, and you can see that there are sometimes very terrible and difficult things that happen in our lives. And it has absolutely nothing to do with sin. Nothing to do with sin at all. In fact, these things happen despite the righteousness of the individual. Read the end of Hebrews chapter 11 sometime. It is a, it's a whole chapter of these great heroes in the faith. At the end, you see that these people that are held up for their faith, their trust in God that led them to do all kinds of great things. It was these same people who still had to, to hide out and live in caves and tattered clothes. And some were even sawn in two. Nothing to do with the fact that they were sinful. In fact, everything to do with the fact that they were righteous. Calamity fell on them despite their being right with God. And Jonah shows us here something different altogether. Look again at Jonah's sin and God's response. Joseph rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship. He paid the fare and went on on board. Verse 4, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the, the ship threatened to break up. Now, as we will see in the rest of the book, God could have just ended Jonah's life right there. I mean, he didn't even have to use the storm. Uh, you read uh, about uh, uh, the, uh, the evil king that uh, Ehud, uh, you know, gutted. I mean, that, that, was, uh, that was a pretty quick and easy way to get rid of a bad guy. You read about a different guy whose uh, uh, body was conser- uh, consumed with disease that God used. There's all kinds of things that God can do. God's not trying to kill Jonah. He's not trying to off him for his disobedience. In fact, we'll see again and again that God sent the storm to try to get His attention. It was a form of grace. It was the means by which God could pick up Jonah from his self-centeredness, from his idolatry, and begin to reorient his life back towards God. It was the means by which God didn't let Jonah continue to go down to further sink into sin but rather to pursue this rebel to bring him back to himself. Here's the amazing reality of God's love towards sinners. He is prepared to move heaven and earth to wake you up to your sin and bring you back to himself. Sometimes the storms of life are the bullhorns of God's mercy, as someone has said. Sometimes the really difficult things that we go through in this life are God's way of calling out to us. Can't you see the direction in which you're heading? It does not end well. Can't you see the sin that is piling up in your life? Can't you see the failure of your own wisdom to run your life? This is why John Newton could accurately write about God's amazing grace. It is amazing. Here we are, sinners who run from God, loving ourselves and our sin more than Him, yet He doesn't give up on us. He comes after us. 
He hunts us down in our sin. He shows us grace and pursues us to get us to see Him, to get us to see Him for the God that He really is, that we might turn from our sins and entrust our lives to Him. This was the testimony of C.S. Lewis. He famously said that he was brought to faith in Christ kicking and screaming. In other words, what he meant by that was he was quite happy to be the captain of his own of his own self on the sea of life. He was happy to be the atheist that he was, to not be bothered by God. But God was not happy to leave him in that situation. He writes of his own testimony and he says this, I had always wanted above all things not to be interfered with. I had wanted a mad wish to call my soul my own. Nevertheless, God wouldn't leave him alone. He goes on to say, You must picture me alone in that room night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. Friends, how often is that us? We're happy in our sin. We're comfortable with our life and the way it's going because we feel like we're in charge. And yet God is patiently there as it were, hanging over us, driving himself in the very corners of our mind, pushing himself out to get our attention, not willing to let us go and make a shipwreck of everything that we have said we believed. God is willing to come after us, even in our sin, and to bring us back to himself. Another man named Francis Thompson had a similar experience of being hunted down by God's grace. As an unbeliever until he saw the futility of his life and turned towards Christ in faith. He eventually wrote down this testimony in a lengthy poem entitled The Hound of Heaven. Here's part of what he says about God's pursuit. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind in the midst of tears. I hid from him and under running laughter. Upvisted hopes I sped and shot precipitated adown titanic glooms of chasmed fears from those strong feet that followed, followed after. But with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy, they beat, and a voice beat more instant than feet. Here's Thompson saying, in his sin he is going wherever he possibly can, and yet wherever he goes, no matter how far away from God he tries to flee, he still hears, as it were, this footstep behind him, constantly in pursuit, patiently approaching him, wanting to show him grace. He said even more persistent was not just the metaphorical footsteps behind him, but was the voice that spoke, come to me and find love, forgiveness, and life. God pursues sinners and storms are often the megaphone that he uses to announce it. But Pastor Tullian Tavigian is right when he says there is an even greater megaphone than the storms of life. There is an even greater, a more impressive, a more intense display of God's grace that should awaken sinners to God. It's called the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Do you doubt God's love? Do you doubt His patience? Do you doubt His amazing grace towards sinners? Then look to Jesus. In Him, God became man and gave up His life for man. He substituted Himself for sinners. 
Tertullian says that is anything but a quiet, subtle response from God. That is a massive yell from heaven. I am in the business of saving rebels. I am in the business of chasing down sinners and showing them mercy and grace and love. It's because of this sin and rebellion, this running from God, that Jesus himself comes as the great wind, as the mighty tempest of God's gracious intervention in our lives. It is a glorious thing. And it is one in which we see not just the magnificence of God himself, but we also see the futility of the gods of our own making. This is the third thing I want to see this morning, and that's this. Storms reveal the futility of our idols. Storms reveal the futility of our idols. The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. When I was in high school, I one time went on a work weekend to our state convention camp. I went there with a couple other youth. I went there also with... um, our pastor and our minister of music and our youth minister, and uh, they were talking about going to a fishing trip that they had taken to Lake Erie. Well, the one, uh, the, the, the one pastor and one of the, de- or the pastor, senior pastor, Glenn, and one of the deacons, Jack, they were avid fishermen. And at least once a year, sometimes two or three times a year, uh, they would go up to Lake Erie, uh, get on the boat, and they would fish. And they would uh, always come back with a good haul. One of the things you may know is that unlike smaller lakes and bodies of water, uh, there's a real sense in which the, the Great Lakes, if you go out far enough, it's like being on the open ocean. I mean, you can get some pretty bad storms. You can get some pretty big waves and some choppy waters. Uh, It's often not for the faint of heart. But they were used to it. They loved it. They went out there all the time. But there was one time when they took the youth minister with them. And they went out. They went out far like they usually did. And it, it got bad. It got real bad. In fact, all of these seasoned guys were refunding their lunch, breakfast, and everything from past Christmas over the side of the boat. And in fact, even as Glenn was relating the story to me, the minister of you said, Glenn, you've got to stop. And he had to lay down. Just the thought of being sick like that was making him feel seasick again. It was so horrible. Now, why do I tell you that? I tell you that because we have something similar going on here. The sailors that are in this boat are not just hobbyists. They're not just, you know, let's go out and take a spin on the Mediterranean every once in a while on a leisure cruise. Let's impress the ladies and bring along some drinks and have a nice time. No, these guys have made their living and their life on the sea. They are the antithesis of land lovers. These guys have seawater in their veins. And it should say something about the fact that they are afraid of the storm. I mean, they knew when to travel, when the bad weather was going to be, and when the nice weather was, and even they knew there is something unusual about this storm. There is something scary about this storm. We've not seen a storm like this, not just in this time of the year, but with this intensity, this ferocity banging down, crashing down upon us. So what do they do? Verse 5, they cried out, each one to his God. These are pagan men who worship pagan gods. In the midst of this uncharacteristic moment of terror for themselves, they began to call out to their gods, pleading for mercy, begging for help that the sea might calm down and the storm might abate. But it didn't work. It didn't work. 
I mean, you can imagine all the kinds of prayers and all the little signs that they were doing, anything to, to raise the attention of their gods, and it didn't work. So then what are they going to do? Well, for, for many of us, they did the unthinkable. They hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it. And we can only imagine what these things were, but you have to understand they're valuable. This wasn't their luggage. You know, this wasn't the spare cloak and the spare underwear. This was cargo. I mean, this was goods that they had purchased to sell in the markets or materials that they were paid to ship out to Tarshish. This was like throwing money into the water. Lots of money. Perhaps months and, and perhaps even the whole year's worth combined of wages. They're throwing all of these things out into the water. Why? Because they're scared for their life. They've called out to their gods and nothing is working. No God is answering them. The storm is increasing in intensity. And I love that almost, that almost comedic, comedic line, the ship is threatening to break up. It's like it's saying, hey, I'm losing myself here. I can't hold it together anymore. I'm about to fly apart. You better do something. And what do they do? Well, they go and find their only passenger, the one man not up on deck praying to his God. Verse 5, Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. This captain was absolutely astonished. This man, Jonah, was asleep in the storm. What was he thinking? I mean, this wasn't just, this wasn't just some ordinary storm. This was not something you could even sleep through. They're praying to their gods and nothing is happening. They didn't know who his God was. They didn't know who he worshipped. But maybe, maybe he would do something in response to the prayer. Maybe he would do something to, to hear and see and save them from this storm. And we've already seen it's not a natural storm. We know it's a supernatural storm. God sent the storm. And here we see that these sailors' false gods were of absolutely no help in getting the storm to be calm. And the same is true for us. The same is true for us. When God sends storms into our lives, there is a great temptation for us to cling to our idols rather than to a living God. In fact, storms provide for us the opportunity to identify those things that are idols in our life. We have the opportunity to see what is the thing I went to first. What is the thing that I first put my trust in, that I first put my hope in to get me out of this situation? Was it or was it not God? And if it wasn't God, why are you putting your trust in it? What good is it really going to do for you? How do we respond to storms? Do we immediately flee to God, the one true God, or do we flee to our idols, the gods of our own making? If you've been raised in church, probably the biggest... The biggest idol that we have in our life is our own righteousness. It's our own belief that, that because we're good and we obey God largely than the people out there, perhaps even other people in here, we're going to be okay. We allow ourselves to be duped into believing that we can make it by ourselves, that we can pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, that we can navigate life by our own wisdom, that we can be our own God. And the result is that we find ourselves in the same place these pagan sailors found themselves when the stores come. We are impotent to do anything. And we are depending on impotent idols which can do nothing. And this is the point of the storm, friends, loved ones, to show us that God alone can meet our needs. 
God alone is able to save us from our sins. God alone is able to sustain us in our life of faith. God alone is the Lord of all things, even of the storm. God alone is far superior to any God of our making. So this morning, as the storms come, perhaps as you can even see the clouds on the horizons, you can feel the change in the air and you can see the coming, the coming storm. Prepare yourself not to trust in anything other than God. Perhaps you're in the storm. Don't waste it. Don't waste it. Don't just batten down the hatches. Don't just tie yourself to the mast and think, I can endure. I can endure. No, you can't in the long run. God is the one you need. He is the true God. He is everything that you need in this life for any storm. On the small island of Inagua, in the Bahamas, there used to be three large 50-foot poles sticking up out of the ground near the island's seaport. It was an odd sight unless you knew what those three poles were for. Given the size of the port and the specific depths in the channel, it was very difficult to dock unless you knew the precise way in which to pilot the vessel through the channel. Those three poles were in fact erected to make this docking procedure easier. If on approach, the pilot directed the ship so that the three poles lined up and you could only see one pole, then he was on target to go right through uh, the channel, right to port. If he didn't, then he would run aground. He would destroy the ship at, at worst, just get stuck and look like an idiot at best. And so uh, those guiding posts were invaluable to those piloting down the channel. And there is a real sense, friends, in which God has given us our own set of poles in the Scriptures. And like Jonah, we, though, often decide to find our own way into the channel, our own way to navigate through life, and we find ourselves running away from God's plans, running away from God's sovereign will. Instead of lining up the directions we've received, we long to go our own way and to do our own thing. And the result is not a better life. The result is not more freedom. The result is not a satisfied soul. The, the result is misery and hardship and ruin. But God doesn't leave us in our sins. Like Jonah, He comes after us even when we don't deserve it. He is a God of grace who even uses the storms of life to get our attention, to get our affection off of ourselves and back on to Him, that we might see Him and trust Him and obey Him. Running from God is ultimately a hopeless endeavor because you can't outrun His grace. So stop running. Stop running. Look to Christ. See the end of your own designs and embrace the grace that is offered there that will not only save you, but sustain you all the days of your life. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for your grace that comes to us even through difficulty, even through storms of life, things that we would never choose to go through ourselves. And yet, God, there are times. There are times when you orchestrate these things so that we might be the recipients of your grace. A grace that allows us to identify all those things that are so empty and vain in which we put our trust and our confidence that we might see it is in you alone that we should put our trust and our confidence. 
that you alone are the rock upon which we should build our lives. And so, God, I pray that, that we, would never, we would never waste the opportunities that we have to be called back by you, to have our courses corrected, that we might know life and salvation and joy with you. God, that is our prayer this morning. It's in Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.